0: Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, Entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for gravitas.
1: In this episode, you'll meet Tim Fiore. Tim is the senior VP and chief procurement officer for Ryder. He is responsible for their global supply chain operations. He is also the chair and spokesperson for the Institute for Supply Management's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee, or PMI. He is certainly no stranger to the microphone. He is often called upon for his insights on the economy from leading business publications such as the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, you name it, you'll see Tim's name come up. But today we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Tim Fiori as a leader, as an authentic leader, what makes him the authentic leader that he most certainly is today. And we will cover topics such as trust, high performance team, what Tim believes it is and how he creates it. And we'll talk about transparency and we'll talk about attracting and retaining new talent and a whole lot more. Tim Fiori, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, it's good to be here, Jan. Thanks for inviting me to participate.
1: Well, you have quite a story. There has to be a tale to tell behind Tim Fiori. This is the man who interviewed Dr. Janet Yellen on stage just minutes after we had her dancing. Remember that?
2: Yes, I sure do. That was quite a sight. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You know, it was part of a bet with the AV guys. We were at a conference a couple of years ago at an ISM event and the the AV guys were saying, you know, oh yeah, you'll, you'll never get her out on stage dancing. I said, watch me.
2: You did better and they, than that. You actually had her <laughs> leaping on stage. She was. I
1: did. She? I know. I know. I know. And we'll let our audience into a little secret. There's actually a video on my YouTube site. Um, but she was. She was great. And you know, Tim, she was such a great, warm human being. I didn't expect her to be that warm. You know, what a great leader, right? What a great woman.
2: Yeah, I felt the same way. It was my yeah. third time meeting her.
1: Oh, was it really?
2: Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, in my. Um, my ISM PMI position, uh, once a year, I get to go meet the Fed chairman to have a conversation with uh, him or her and their staff. And it's, it's something I look forward to every year. Unfortunately, with the virus issue now, uh, we, we are not going this year. And we'll see if we go next year. So it's too bad.
1: Well, that was great. And that was the first time that I met you personally. And so now we get the opportunity to go much deeper. And I want to know, Tim Fury, what is your story? Take us back to the beginning.
2: So, uh, well, so I got 43 years in the business. I started uh, in supply management in 1978. I uh, was born and grew up in north central Connecticut, right near the Massachusetts border. And uh, I had great parents. And I got my way into college. I got my way through high school, got my way into college. In those days, supply management people kind of fell into the jobs. They didn't go to school for it. I don't think there was even a school at that point who was offering supply management skills. I'm actually a second generation supply management person. My father's a first generation. He came out of the storeroom at an aerospace company in Connecticut called Command and uh, they saw his skills. He was a Korean war vet and they, uh, they used his administrative skills to do logistics and management of people and equipment. And uh, he grew through the ranks and uh, I actually had my first interview by a friend of his who told me right off the bat, he said, Look, I can't hire you, but I will give you an interview just so you can hone your interview skills. And I'm this 23-year-old kid who knows nothing. I still do remember uh, his name is Sam Pinella, still alive. I do remember the advice he gave me. He said, "Look, what you need in your life is a short-term goal and a long-term goal. Long-term goal meaning five years. Short-term goal meaning one to two. Keep those in mind, and you'll do fine." So, so I got into supply management early on. Uh, In those days, I was hired by a, a great supervisor who was determined to hire a person into purchasing and supply who had a four-year degree. It was not a common thing back in the 70s for that. Um, A lot of people got promoted out of the shop and put into those jobs just to chase hardware. So he brought me in because I had a four-year degree. And uh, at the time, I really had no idea why he hired me. Did a great job mentoring me and and exposing me to additional challenges throughout the five years I was with that company. Uh, I actually worked for a company that designed and built a spacesuit and was building the environmental systems for the space shuttle program. And they put me on a small business that made rocket engines and other uh, propulsion devices for satellites and missiles. So I had no idea what I was getting into, but boy, I look back at that period in my life and it's a great period to so much fun, so much experience. I learned what teamwork was really like, because when you're building a space suit or a space shuttle or rockets to protect the United States, there's no room for personalities. There's only room for performance. And I learned how some very smart people work through tough technical challenges to achieve success. And I was actually at Hamilton Standard, which was a division of UTC, when we launched the first two spacesuits on the space shuttle. It was on, I think it was mission three. And the astronauts put one space, space suit on and it failed. They put the second spacesuit on and that failed. So they scrubbed the mission, came back to earth, the head of NASA came into the company and said, you need to fix these things. You need to fix them quickly. And uh, in a space of six to eight weeks, we redesigned, fault tolerated, came up with three different designs and launched two new spacesuits that successfully spacewalked um, you know, in a in the space of six weeks. These were, these were guys that worked on Apollo. These were guys that worked on the, uh, the spacesuit that saved the Apollo astronauts on Apollo 13. So it was a really great experience. And it's funny, I was up in Connecticut a a couple of weeks ago, and I went into a hardware store that I've known for a long time. And I met a young woman who is a granddaughter of the prior owner. I said, so how's your grandfather doing? Oh, he's doing fine. I said, you know, what's this propeller doing here? It was a Hamilton Standard propeller at the front door. And she said, she lit up like this beautiful beam. And she said, oh, I work at Hamilton Space Systems. It's the great job, best job in the world. I love my job. She was actually leaping almost like Janet Yellen. So my wife was standing there with me, and I'm like, I can't believe this. She's got the same fever that I had 45 years ago because, I mean, it's so important, your first job. It's the one that really motivates you, and uh, especially when you learn teamwork skills like that, and there's no tolerance for failure. But, you know, so, so throughout my, my early life, I liked to read a lot. My mother was a great reader, and uh, I read a lot of C.S. Forrester's novels. And uh, he had a, a guy called Horatio Hornblower who sailed around the world on a British man of war and a frigate and went to all different places around the world. And boy, I would love that. And I, I really wanted to get a job that allowed me to travel and see the world. And eventually that was my five-year goal. And I eventually got there. I've got 4 million miles on an airplane. I've seen 60 or so countries, the cultures and things. I've lived overseas for a while, which I still look back 20 years ago. It was a great experience. So you know, I, I took that, um, that, that first uh, five years at Hamilton. My boss was great. he really mentored me to the point where uh, United Technologies was setting up a, a laser weapon system laboratory down in Florida, Jupiter, Florida. So they, they internally, they went around to the CFOs and said, "Is there anybody who you have working for you that could go down there and help set up a system?" They wanted, obviously, a young person who had a technical background that could work with scientists, you know, developing these laser weapon systems. And I was fortunate. I competed uh, amongst internal UTC candidates. I got the job and my wife and I in 1984 with two very small kids uh, packed up, waved goodbye to our families and moved to Jupiter, Florida. Uh, in 84 during what was called the president Reagan's strategic defense initiative. Uh, we designed and, and built prototypes for space-based laser weapons ground-based laser weapons, uh, LIDAR systems that people take for granted today. So, you know, we, sit, we, we lived down here for eight years. And then when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, I had to go because I was too young to retire here. And I went back to another Hamilton unit and uh, worked in the aircraft systems business for six years and probably the most difficult job of my career. High, high, uh, high mixed, low volume parts driven by spares, a lot of challenges every day. Every day you woke up to a new challenge. Uh, so I, I did six years of that. And then I was fortunate. Uh, there was a, uh, an organization at UTC that was going to do global sourcing. And I was asked to join that team, one of about 12 people. And after about a year of that, uh, uh, they asked me to move to Paris. So I went to Paris as a director of sourcing for UTC. I got into the commercial business quite a bit. Up to that point, I had been pretty much military, aviation, and aerospace. And so I worked with the carrier business, the Otis business. Got to know the Europeans. Uh, you know, great people, lived in Paris, traveled all over the, the Eurasian continent, uh, got into China in the 1993, I think it was my first time there. Uh, I was in Chongqing many, many years ago, stayed at one of the, the nicest hotels I'd ever stayed in. Chongqing is about 1,200 miles inland, about 30 million people. And uh, I, I also remember when I was in Shanghai once, I went to a conference there and I remember walking down Anjing Street. And I was the only Caucasian on the street that had to have hundreds of thousands of people on it. So it's been a great career. Uh, I now work for Ryder. I worked for Rider uh, uh, back in 2002 when I finally left UTC after 22 years. I was Ryder's first CPO, brought some really good people in. We, uh, we made a, a big difference in the industry as well as uh, with the company. Stayed there for about five years and went to a couple of other assignments. And you know, then I retired for, for four years. And I was very happy in retirement, no doubt about that. Uh, I did all those. I, I restarted all those things that I had lost in that 40-year career. But I said, when people would ask me, are you going to go back to work? I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going back to work. Are you going to consult? No, I'm not going to consult. But if a writer asked me to come back, I would seriously consider it. And the reason is, is that the writer people are great people. You can still find people there 35 years. The first thing a writer person will tell you is how long they've been there. The Rider management team is excellent. I worked with them in the early 2000s and uh, I, was, uh, I was very thrilled and honored to get back to work with them directly. Uh, the suppliers are very big manufacturers of you know, big equipment. And over the years, I've dealt with many of them, not only in a Rider job, but at some of my other jobs. So on a first name basis for, with several of the CEOs and a lot of what we do at Rider, we do supply chain work. So a lot of our customers are big CTOs. And after 40-something years, I know a lot of them, too. So I decided to come back. I'm about two and a half years into it, uh, enjoying every minute of it, developing uh, my staff, looking forward to retirement again. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad at this point in my career I got the energy to keep up with it. But uh, it's been a great career. My, my daughter also is in the business. She's a third-generation supply manager person. I think you know, that she's the only – I'm sure there are two, two generations, but I'm not so sure there are three. And uh, she's a third. She's got a Sloan School uh, MBA degree. She married a guy uh, who's also in the supply world. Uh, so it's kind of all in a family.
1: That's amazing. You know, you said when you started your career, you were the first degreed person that they put into supply chain. And I remember back in the day, it was the place that you put the deadwood right? I mean, That's it correct. was. That's correct. People, if people didn't have the guts to uh, take action to uh, move a person out of an organization, they put them in purchasing because they thought, well, how much damage could you possibly do? You're just buying nuts and bolts and screws or whatever you're doing. And look how far the profession has come, but also look at recently, I mean, just as recently as a Several years ago, when I was in supply chain, I would say to people I work in supply chain, and they would sort of look at me like, "Huh? What's that?" Is you know, right. they, you know, we kind of, uh, yeah, well, maybe. And now everybody in the world knows what supply chain is because of the COVID situation. So we've gone from one extreme completely to the other.
2: Yes, we absolutely have. It's it's a uh, it's a great story, and I, you know, I I saw a lot of the evolution. I saw the corporate sourcing activity back in the mid '80s. Uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, uh, when my boss hired me, he hired me because I had a four-year degree, but it was a little bit more complicated than that. Him and I used to go out to lunch like twice a week. We were that close. So at one point, after about two years into it, I asked him, so why did you hire me anyway? He saw "I was really simple. He said, you like to work on cars and motorcycles. So I knew you were technically strong and you could keep up with the engineers. And you had a history degree, which means you know how to research, hypothesize, and present an opinion. You were natural for it. <laughs> I would never have thought that. <laughs> so you know, the message is, is hey, it really doesn't matter what your background is. You know, If you can put all the pieces together, uh, you can make it work. Because the, the most important thing in a supply chain job is really to get people to work together. And it took me a while to kind of grow beyond, I'm really good at what I know and I can apply it well to how do I get everybody else to kind of apply the same amount of knowledge and skill and user strengths to, to do something better for the company. And that's, that's what's kept me motivated for a long time.
1: You strike me, Tim, as the kind of person that never stops learning and growing. I mean, obviously, your career is evidence of that, but you're, you're not stopping now. You, you, you haven't reached a point and said, there's nothing I can learn anymore, because you're, you're still learning and growing. And I see you, you know, you're, you're sharing your knowledge um, on uh, talk radio, on TV, well, on publications, But what have you learned both professionally and personally from this pandemic? Let's start with the personal. What have you learned about yourself from this pandemic?
2: Well, so uh, early on when this thing came about, I've got uh, buying responsibility, obviously, at Ryder. And I had several people who were uh, pursuing hand sanitizers and other disinfectant agents and they were sitting around my office too. I knew they were involved in it. Uh, I didn't know how serious the whole thing was at the time. We were talking about it, at the leadership team. But... So I, I went to them, got fully briefed on what they were being asked to do, uh, came to the conclusion that, you know, we need a program manager to do this because this isn't just buying. This is acquiring, planning, buying a bunch of stuff and then distributing it across 1,500 locations around the U.S. right away. And are we really buying the right stuff? How much should we buy? How long will this go on? So I remember going upstairs to a couple of, of my peers and my boss. I said, oh, how long do you think this virus is going to last? How much stuff should I be buying? And we all agreed three months. We, <laughs> three months. <laughs> okay, I could do that. So I go back downstairs and, you know, we got to buy three months. Okay, fine. So at our next leadership team meeting, I said, you know, we need a program manager for this. Uh, this is more than just a buying task. So after about five minutes of going around the table, my boss said, well, Tim, why don't you do it? So, okay, I could do that. I know how to do this stuff. And I was so glad that he did, because uh, I was able to rely on a lot of my experience expediting material and chasing hardware. And that's exactly what we did, getting all the stuff that we needed to do. Uh, but I was determined that, you know I think we all need to be near each other. So we emptied the building. The only people left in the building before the shutdown orders was my small team of five people, as well as the management team. So, and we were chasing things, five, every five, 10 minutes, we were having to make a decision had to stand up a warehouse to have it all received, had to uh, engage some people to rebottle things, we had to repackage, and we had to get the stuff out into the rider community right away. Because my boss said to me, he's absolutely right, he said, look, I can't ask people to come to work if I can't keep them safe. And, and we're, we're keeping them safe. So probably about seven or eight days into this, we had order streams set up, we're mailing checks out, or wiring money, paying in advance, whatever it took. I'm sitting in my office and I said, you know, I don't know that we really need to be in the office to do this anymore. I think the urgency now has passed. Uh, and I think we can probably manage this remotely. So we did. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, we ended up having somebody in the office who had contracted the virus and we were all sent home anyway. But, uh, he, you know, he had recovered. So, it was, But we were concerned at that point that maybe one of us had gotten sick. So, you know, one of the first things I have really learned is, and I've never been a fan of people working from home for a lot of reasons. I mean, the first one, my first reason is, how are you going to get promoted? Who's going to know you? How do you get to walk around the halls? How do people get to know who you really are, how committed you are? People always wonder how hard you're working because they figure you're at home, you're going to work however hard you want to. And that may not be at hundred percent. And everybody always says that, well, if you got the right goals set and they perform to the goals, what are you worried about? Well, I've always believed that people have infinite capacity to do more. I saw that back when the spacesuit failed and I saw people working around the clock. Uh, and if i was always lived by that. And I, and I thought, you know, if you're not part of the company here where we all are, then how are we going to progress you? Well, my opinion on that's all changed, you know, no doubt about it. And I think you're seeing now in some of the media that even the CEOs are starting to wonder whether working from home is really great for everybody long-term. And I'm not surprised at that. I think the culture of a company is defined by people interfacing together on a regular basis, socializing somewhat. So we'll see where all that kind of pans out. But uh, I I think the technology came along really well at the right time, because without this technology, we'd all be on conference calls and being a global person traveling around the world on conference calls all all hours of the night. I know what that's like. It's only partially effective. You you don't get a chance to really speak up that easily. Uh, If you can't see the person, you're not sure what the body language is. But all this technology is really helping that. So. You know, I, I think, and, and I mean, it's always the key is that you generally in an organization, you have 10 to 20% who are really strong performers, 10% who are not performers really hardly at all, and the rest that are in the middle. And if you accept the fact that, look, you really can't do much about the ones that aren't going to perform to your expectations, and you concentrate on the high performers and the ones in the middle ask them to do a little bit more, then you get a lot more out of it. So I've kind of sat back and said, you know, we've, between the commuting and the lack of travel and the inefficient meetings, uh, you know, you'd have a meeting. And if it was an hour meeting, you'd be there for an hour. Now, if you have an hour uh, Teams or Zoom meeting, if it's over in 20 minutes, everybody's gone on to the next thing. And with everybody being essentially chained to their computer and monitor, you can reach anybody anytime. We have executive calls with our key suppliers and, uh, you know, the writer executive team. Uh, gets on the team's call along with the executives of you know the big oes and we we're able to schedule these calls in four weeks in in the past, it would take us four months to align calendars now it's four weeks so we're we're really doing things a lot faster and at this point, I think a lot more efficient. I think we're a lot more productive, but you know the problem is is how do you define the company's culture? Can you really do it remotely by a number of people you know living everywhere and we'll see we're we're getting ready to probably hire our first person post-COVID. And the first question that's going to come up is, well, do I have to move? And South Florida is an interesting market to recruit into. And it's a, it's a difficult market to keep people in. And I've experienced it several times, especially down in the Broward, Miami-Dade area. And so it kind of limits the, our ability to attract the best and the brightest from outside the area. But I think what we're going to do this time is say, look, for the next couple of years, don't worry about it. You can stay where you are and longer term from a, from a career standpoint, we'll figure that out. And, I, and I'm kind of optimistic about that is that we're going to really be able to access a different level of talent, too, because of that.
1: You know, this technology that we're using, it's been around for a while. I mean, we've, Zoom is not new. It's, it's been around for many years, actually. But it took a pandemic for us to get over the hump to to really embrace the work from home model. What advice would you have for leaders out there who are still uncomfortable with it because they still want to control what people are doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't quite trust enough to let go. What advice would you have for those leaders?
2: Well, so I've been asking, we we received a study that came from CAPS. It's the, the research arm of ISM and ASU. And they surveyed a number of companies uh, about how are you attracting and retaining your under 40-year-olds. So we got the study, and I, I asked the people who work for me that are under 40 to take a look at it and give me their opinion about the conclusions. Well, they came back last week and gave me their opinion, and they ranked them. The number two issue was this whole issue around work-life uh, flexibility, not life flexibility. Will I be able to continue to work from home? So I think now what's happened is with everybody was forced home. And everybody has their reasons why they should stay safe, right? I mean, I'm not a, a 25, 30-year-old where I can pick this thing up and have a sneeze, and three days later, I'm going to be fine. I, who knows what could happen to me? So everybody now has gotten that taste from working from home. So They know how effective they are. Their bosses are confirming that they're effective. It's going to be very difficult to change that. So, so the next thing I asked them was, all right, I got my direct team together, and I said, when my boss asked me what I should do, as we reopen up, what am I going to tell them? So you guys need to tell me what you want me to tell them. And, you know, almost to the T we all kind of come up with the same conclusion that we're not in any rush to get back. Why, uh, why would you rush us to get back? Well, now we're in a headquarters facility, right? And Ryder has 40,000 employees. Uh, there's only about 2000 that uh, are working from home. All the rest have been out there in uh, in, in dangerous jobs, frontline people. We move material, we move food, we move drugs. Uh, we have to keep those trucks running. Like I said, we have fifteen hundred locations around the U.S. That's why it was so important to get that PPD out there right away. So what you know what what are you going to tell them? So I'm going to tell them, look, we're going to look function by function and decide what are the pros or cons for them to come back. So we're going to go you know, level by level. There's about ten different functions that my group actually does, and we'll come up with a recommendation. But my my thoughts to the to anybody. Th- Trying to work through this, and of course, I work with all my suppliers too, because they all have a hybrid mix of some are in the office, some are not. Uh, most of them are engineering companies, so they're very concerned about the culture. Engineers generally are the ones who develop a company's culture. You see it in their vehicles, the styles and things, and you feel it when you get behind the wheel of a car. We're just going to have to take this slowly, and you know, until until you can promise people that they're not going to get sick by going into an office. Why would you force them back? There's really, there's no need to force them back. And if, if you do find that there is a need in the future, then figure it out. But if you try to force back people now who have been gotten used to this, you're going to have a problem. The other thing that was brought up to me, a friend of mine who does a lot of recruiting, him and I had a conversation the other day. And he said, do you realize that all your people now are poachable? I never thought, thought about that. I, I thought about hiring people, let them work from home. But now all my people here who like the South Florida area are now poachable. They could be taken to another job and another employer will tell them, you don't have to move for at least two years. You can stay where you are. So all of a sudden now it's like, uh-oh, got to keep a close eye on this. I tend to try to k- t- take care of them anyway. I'm late career. And, and my goal here is really just to leave a strong organization in place that can continue the legacy. So, yeah,
1: you know, we don't want to lose them. Tim, you just said something that's, Very powerful. And you said it, um, I don't know that you realized how, how powerful these words were, but you said that when you were asked for a recommendation that you would have to give your boss a recommendation on work from home, that you asked your team to come up with that recommendation. So I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that wouldn't feel comfortable asking the team to put that recommendation together, that as the boss and as the leader, that they were supposed to make that decision by themselves. So, but you just, you just said that because that's part of your, obviously your normal leadership style, right? Let's, let's explore that a little bit. You know, you, you obviously go to your team for their input. Can we, can you talk a little bit more about that approach and how come you're so comfortable in your own skin in doing that? You know, a lot of people would feel that as the boss, you will have to make the decision. Could you talk about that?
2: Sure. So uh, you know, I mentioned that I lived over in Europe for a period of years when I was at United Technologies. And there was, it was a big transition in, in my own personal style at the time. I, prior to that time, I, you know, I felt that I had some strong functional skills. And that's how I had been successful getting to where I was. But I also knew I had some limitations. And uh, so, so my boss's boss sends me to Paris and he says, okay, Tim, I want you to go over there and get them all to work together. So I said, well, how am I supposed to do that? Why do you think I'm going to be successful with that? And he said to me, well, look, you're American of an Italian descent, so you'll get along with everybody. And I was like, I whacked myself in the side of the head. and thought, I mean, the Europeans were notorious back in the 90s for not working together well. You, you could not put a leader in there who was German, you know, managing the other four countries. You couldn't put a Brit in. You couldn't put a Frenchman in. It was just not allowed. But an American at a time when America was really perceived very well around the globe, uh, with apparently an Italian-American background, could be flexible enough to get them to do things together. The, the other thing that I've always been uh, pretty adamant about is I would never allow anybody to do anything I wouldn't do myself. So I tend to, to do a lot. I don't, I don't direct, I don't uh, delegate strongly, I'm, I'm actively involved. And the third thing is uh, I believe in transparency. And I, I learned this uh, when I was at Hamilton back in the early 90s, that if you can be as transparent as, as possible with your suppliers, they can't lie to you. So I, you know, I kept with that concept when I went to Europe. I, I assembled teams. Everybody had a say. We collaborated. We were transparent with each other. We were transparent with our suppliers. There was no hidden agendas. And I've carried that through you know, since the, uh, since the late 90s. And, and I think that's what works. And I've actually worked in companies where that was really not the leadership's preferred style of management. And, uh, and it didn't really work out all that well for me because you know, people expected me to just make decisions and direct. But, but I've always felt that the more people you include, the more transparent you are about objectives, no hidden agendas, and you're willing to put the time in yourself, you can lead people and you can get them to stress their capabilities. And you know, through that, they learn and they grow. And that's, that's been my style.
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes people underestimate people, right? People know if you're not telling them the whole story, if you're misrepresenting things, people just have that gut feel. You know, they can just tell you're not fooling anybody. And I think the sooner people sort of wake up and realize that, then we'll have a lot more authentic leaders out there than we do today. Um, But I I have a a question for you. You know, we talk a lot about teams and team performance and individual performance. This term, a high-performance team, what does that mean to you? What is a high-performing team to you?
2: So I actually mentioned that term at a board meeting about a year ago, and they all looked at me like, what? So for me, a high-performance team means that I don't have to do anything that I kind of just step back and I just kind of watch and I advise. And for me, a high performing team is that everybody on that team is an equal and that they all cover for each other and they use their strengths to fill gaps in others who may not have those same strengths. And uh, I, you know, I I learned that technique uh, when I was first at Ryder, I assembled a small team of about six people and everybody had their strengths and weaknesses. And I, I, I allowed them to kind of speak up and and help each other out. At that point in time, it wasn't a common thing to help a peer out, right? You were, in my prior jobs, you were competing against your your peers. So, and when I came back to Ryder, that's one of the things I really wanted to do. So, I, you know, I've got a really fun team, a really great team, and they they watch out for each other. They know who's strong in certain skills. Uh, they They know when somebody's falling behind. And they essentially manage themselves, and, and I, I set some high-level goals. I'll jump in, obviously, and adjudicate if it needs to be. But I have very few disagreements amongst the team. They they tend to resolve it. And I, I also have a pretty uh, I would call it a pretty diverse team, meaning that a lot of them have first-gen uh, European backgrounds that tend to be a bit more adaptive anyway. And so they're not they're not like uh, individual hard chargers that are going to run over everybody. And it's and it, it took probably about the first year and a half to get them to believe that that's what I wanted them to do, that I wanted them to work together. Uh, I didn't want to delegate. I didn't want to have to approve. I wanted them to figure it out. I set the top level objectives. And I think And some of them got frustrated because not only did I want them to do it, I wanted them with all their activities to do it with their customers. I wanted their customers to have an equal voice. I didn't want to go telling anybody, this is what you're going to do. I don't believe that ever works. So, and they struggled with getting their, you know, people who didn't work for me on the team to help make the decisions that needed to be made. And it took about a year and a half. And some of them felt it was slowing things down. I said, look, there's no time urgency here. What's more important is that we have a culture change and that everybody works together for the benefit of the company. And, uh, you know, with a company like Ryder, that we buy trucks, we service trucks, we send trucks out to be serviced by dealers. We buy a ton of parts, we buy you know a bunch of lubricants, fuel, it's all interrelated, and, and you know my role there is to get everybody who has those electronic vehicle, electric vehicles that are coming, autonomous driving. It's my goal to get the suppliers to match up with everything because you know in the end, the person who makes a decision on what we're going to buy for new trucks gets the supplier's attention. but you know, I make sure that the supplier gives everybody else the attention that they need to uh, to move their job forward so it took a little while, but I, th- I think you know, time is not, it wasn't time urgent. It's not like we had to save a hundred million dollars in two years. I, I did not have a sub-optimized objective. And that's one of the good things I like about Ryder too, is that they wouldn't have put me in that position. It's just wasn't, it's not the Ryder way. It's more, we've been around for 85 years and Jim Ryder started with one truck and uh, we'll be here for another hundred years. And we do a great job. And, uh, and I think we perform better now with all of us working together.
1: It sounds almost too good to be true. It, it it sounds like a wonderful culture and a wonderful way uh, place to work. And I know people that have worked directly for you who uh, just absolutely loved the experience. But how, Tim? How do you how do you create a high performing team that's got each other's back, where you've got trust and um, psychological safety, and that they they operate as a unit? How do you make that happen?
2: Well, I think the first thing is you've got to look for the people internal to the company that will fit that profile. If you go out and hire or even bring in people who you know and plop them into the company and you say, okay, you know, I want you guys to work together. They don't know the company. They don't have the relationships. They're not gonna be successful in the long term. They'll be lucky to probably survive a couple of years. So I think the right mix is you know, 65% of people who are in the role, get them onto the team bring in another 20% from outside the role, but within the company, bring them on the team and bring 10 to 15% in from outside. And, you know, I found that work my first time at Ryder. I tried to repeat it several times in other locations. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, In this case, I'm probably more 70% inside the company. And it's actually more like 80% with only a couple of strategic hires that have made a big difference. So, uh, you know, and it's all a function of leadership. I mean, the, when, when when I came in, there really had not been a supply management leader. There had been a, a, a function that had s- a split objectives, uh, a lot of focus on electric vehicles and things, which is all great. But we had lost our alignment with our key suppliers. And we needed to reestablish that alignment. And they were more than happy to give it. So uh, you know, I think it's it, you, you really need to use the strengths of the people inside. And then, you know, obviously, I, I teamed up with my major partners at, at my level, and, uh, and they assigned their people to work with my people. And over time, they learned to trust us, that we weren't out to do something. And, and over time, we learned to trust them. And, w- and when that happens, it's a, it's a great feeling. <laughs> it's just, it's all for the company.
1: Yeah, So it sounds like you really modeled the behavior yourself at your peer-to-peer level.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Like I said, I wouldn't ask anybody to do something I wouldn't do myself. And I I absolutely believe in it. And, you know, I'm 40. Like I said, I'm 43 years into the business. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to going home at some point in the future. Uh, I I survived four years, retired very well, enjoyed it like crazy. I miss it today. Uh, And like I said, I wouldn't come back to work if it wasn't for Ryder so. Well, you know, I'll put my time in to make sure I leave an organization here that can continue on.
1: I'm curious if somebody from the outside comes into your organization, let's say you hired me right? I come in and... I'm that, you know, you often see people who are new into an organization, they're desperate to, to show people how much they know and that they're going to have an impact to the bottom line. And sometimes they may come into your office and say, you know, I think we should do this because I see people over here doing this and doing that, essentially, you know, telling tales of their peers, right? You've, you've seen that behavior. I know you have. So that, So when somebody comes to you, with that sort of storyline. How do you handle a situation like that?
2: Well, it's all about the long-term game, right? It's not the short-term game. Uh, and, and it's not about a sub-optimized objective that we may have. And, and a lot of people in our roles are savings-oriented. Uh, I, I believe that we have to develop savings and we also have to develop value. Uh, we we spent a ton of time uh, in the last couple of years when the, the market really took off, making sure that we had advantage lead times and slots and And getting our suppliers to deliver as as close to on time as possible, and that had a lot more value uh, than saving fifty million dollars. I mean, we saved our share of money too, no doubt about it, but you got to be aligned with what the business needs. and at that point in time, the business needed to be able to grow. And in order to grow, you had to be precise about execution. so so we you know that was our number one concentration. And then you know we also looked at the savings piece and like I said, this company's been around a long time. If we don't save it this year, we'll save it next year. But we're not going to do something that's not right just to, to score a win on a savings column. Uh, I mean, I've got a great partner in Tom Havens who's uh, heads of the maintenance function. We work really well together. We know what the issues are. It's a very complicated business. And uh, we just continue to do a good job at getting better every day. And uh, you know, it probably took us about nine months to a year to get there. Uh, but we did. And we've actually made some pretty dramatic changes in some of our key suppliers that uh, had a big impact on his operation. And he was as supportive with doing it as I was. And, and we're, and when, you know, when you do a deal, you don't walk away from it and leave it up to the operators to manage you. you be there too. You know, I offered to loan him people. I'm, I continue to have uh, uh, calls with the CEOs of all of our big suppliers. I keep that line of communication open. Uh, Historically, we haven't really done that. And one of my objectives is to, when I do retire again, is that we have uh, relationships across the entire organization with, with our key suppliers. I mean, these are big companies, Damla trucks, North America, Navistar, Volvo, Chevy, uh, Suzu, they're big companies and we're, we're a big customer. We're, we're one of only four or five customers that are in our league and actually only one of two. So and the industry is the type that doesn't really have concentrations in customers. They deal through dealers. So the dealers are essentially diluted and they have dealer councils and things, but it's hard for them to get the mother company to move. Uh, and the mother company moves on its own schedule. When you have a big buyer like myself uh, or our competition, our number one competitor, they listen and they move. And because of that, they become better companies. And uh, and they, they say it to me, Pretty frequently. And, and I, you know, I learned that when I was at Hamilton back in the early 90s, too, that if we concentrate our spend, we expect you to get better. And don't, you know, don't just stick fingers at each other, just get better. That's what it's all about. And that's what it is. The, the nice thing about the Rider job is that it's really partnership development. And people use that term very loosely. Uh, I, I know what it is because we have so much concentration with 15 suppliers, we can make their businesses and they can make our business. And it's not like we want to walk away from any of them, and they don't want to walk away from us either. So we're kind of forced to work together. And I, th- I think it, it works out for a great partnership. After all these years of doing this, I mean, this is, a, this is kind of like Apple with, with Foxconn, you know. Uh, without Foxconn, Apple would be a much weaker company. And without Apple, Foxconn wouldn't exist. So it's a very similar situation.
1: We love to talk about innovation these days. And there's over 90% of CEOs have innovation on their agenda. And we love to talk about it. But often these companies will palm that off to their head of engineering or design or R&D. They don't think of it as being part of the culture. Innovation is part of the culture. And to have innovation, you must have trust because you have to get rid of fear. You have to banish fear. Innovation means you have to, you try and you fail and you try and you fail. So if you want innovation on your agenda, you can't have a culture or an environment where people are afraid to make a decision or come up with a new idea. And that takes trust. People have to feel safe in the organization. It sounds like you have built an organization where trust is a very important factor so, how do you now build upon that to get innovation? Talk to us a little bit about innovation and, and bringing innovation to the forefront from your team.
2: So, you know, innovation is, it can be there's there's two paths of innovation in my world, right? It's unlocking innovation at my supplier world level and making sure that that innovation is available to my company, so that we can evolve and stay ahead of our competition. And you know, think about electric trucks, battery powered trucks. Think about fuel cells. Uh, autonomous driving; these things are all coming, and uh, and and they they represent threats to uh, to our business. I mean, autonomous driving essentially means that when you get to the nth state, you know, where whenever that is, you don't need drivers. And and we part of our business is we manage twelve thousand drivers every day. So if you don't have drivers to manage, then I'm not sure, you know, what the what the purpose is for that piece of our business. Uh, electric vehicles. We've got thousands of technicians who maintain diesel vehicles every day. When you have electric vehicles, you're talking about replacing battery packs and brakes, and that's it. And the the core of our business on the maintenance side is we take the problem off of your back. We'll maintain these vehicles. We'll sell them at the end of their life. We'll deal with the parts issues, the warranty issues. And 65% of that is predominantly engine related. So uh, you know, we need to be current and upfront and find our piece of that space. You know, if we're just going to maintain battery vehicles, what does it mean to ride our long-term? So we're constantly innovating in other areas adjacent to our business. And a lot of that has to do with key suppliers, as well as key technology platforms that continue to come out every day. But, you know, in my world, uh, in my world within the organization of supply management, it's really trying something different from what we've done in the past. And, you know, for instance, we've got, uh, we have over 600 repair locations around the uh, United States and Canada, and we spend somewhere in the range of three to $400 million a year locally. That is almost impossible to manage centrally because if you try to manage it centrally, you'll probably tell somebody to use some supplier who's not a good service performer. And th- this is the area of spend where service performance is number one. And cost is number two or number three. If you don't have the service level, it doesn't matter what you're paying. So we're trying to come up with a way to do that in the, in the COVID crisis. The strategy was to deploy two or three small teams of two people out around metropolitan areas and or regions of the U.S. to work with our local people to understand uh, who are the best service providers, who do they prefer to use, is there a reason, are there reasons for that, and then to really understand the finances around the, the business relationship. Well, with the virus coming, I'm not sending people out in the field, nor, nor do our field people want to come and see them, nor are the suppliers going to come to a big bidders conference where you get 200 people in a conference room. So that's all kind of dead. So now we're trying to figure out how do we do this project at the central level and, and not have that full vis- visibility and involvement at the team level locally. So what we decided to do is, okay, we're going to see if we can't strike relationships The key providers that are spread out around the North American market may not be specific to a certain market, and we'll establish a better Mm -hmm. deal, and we'll see whether the local people use them or not. So it's only a partial solution. I don't think it's the final solution. I don't believe in spending any time on anything that people aren't going to use. So I'm, I'm nervous about it because there will be a point in time where I'll be recommending that they try somebody or use somebody, and I don't know the full story locally. But, I mean, you have to be flexible. It may not be successful. It's a significant savings activity for us for the year. Um, one of the things we're trying to do, like, like I said, we have a lot of dealers that, we, that support us around the country, you know, thousands of locations. We're, we're trying to use the, the, uh, the OE's relationships with their dealers to establish performance metrics locally, like uh, stockouts, uh, turnaround time for orders, and things like that. And if I can get that kind of visibility, which nobody at the local level has, then I'll feel a lot better about maybe developing deeper relationships with those dealers who are performing better than the rest. And you know, I, I, the the way I I get these companies to do things it's it's competitive pressure, right? And that's where the transparency comes in. So if I can show a dealer body that the competing dealer body is operating better across th- three or four or five important criteria, they're going to respond. And and that's really how you deal in an, in an oligopolistic market is that you just you, you force them to compete against each other. And you know, with the position that Ryder has, the size of us, they can't ignore us because we're too important to their business.
1: Yeah, it's obvious that transparency is a very important value to you.
2: Absolutely. And you know, we, we do a lot with, in, in our case, because we're a transportation company, you know, a lot of our customers are also suppliers and a lot of our suppliers could be big customers. And it's been interesting as we've been developing that concept, obviously every deal has to stand on its own merit, but our concept of transparency is not the same on the other side. So what I do is I, since I am so transparent with the CEOs of all the companies, I, I make the comment to them is look, if we're gonna compete to, for your business, you should be as transparent as we are with you. Be as clear and, and not opaque. Don't, you know, don't sit there with cards against your chest show them because that's what I show you. And it's, it's interesting with a lot of my, cause I'm dealing with other CPOs, right. in big companies and you know, I, and I know them, but you know, they, they have cultures within their companies that are trying to deal with this transparency issue. But since we are so transparent with them and it allows them to be better companies, how can they not be transparent with us?
1: I bet they're shocked, right? I bet some of them are shocked at the level of transparency that you share but you come from such a good place. You know, you, you, you're very authentic. You're very real. You have credibility. You have integrity. How can they argue with that? But I'm sure you throw some of them off.
2: That's exactly right. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the time where you have trouble with that is if you're not really being straight and open, right. If there, or you have an insecurity that you're not going to meet your goal, if you be fully truthful. Now, I'm not saying that you total, total truth, but I'm, I I don't hide pretty much anything that I can think of that's important to the relationship. And, and I think I get a better response for it. And I know I can, I can establish that value prop of our management much clearer. So, but it, it is, it's a culture changing thing for some of these organizations because I mean, a lot of them have CPOs that maybe aren't as tenured as I am. And, you know, they're fairly new in a job. They're not as comfortable with themselves and, it's more like three bits and, and, you know, who can I get to get me the lowest price? And I've never believed that the lowest price was the best price ever. You know, and, and, you know, if you're within 5%, I mean, what, what's the difference? I mean, let's, let's talk about what this really means to us. And, but, there, you know, there's, if, when people have sub-optimized objectives like savings targets, you know, a million dollars additional is important to them and, because they're being measured on it. And, and, and unfor- that's an unfortunate situation. I've had those roles before, and it's, it's a difficult job.
1: Yeah. Well, it's much more than just the ROI, right? And that's what people are starting to understand and recognize. And if you listen to the work of Simon Sinek, I love the way that he articulates that. Uh, it's much more about the number. It's much more than the numbers. It's, it really is about the people.
2: Yeah, but a lot of these jobs get filled by consultants coming in, right? Consultant comes in, says, you got all this opportunity, but you need a, a good CPO to bring it home, and then the CPO gets hired. The CEO hired the consultant. He's put 10 or $20 million up there, and he wants that savings. And it's and you, you come in sometimes with the best of intentions, but in the end, sometimes you're forced to kind of chase that savings number down, whether it's real or not. And it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, I'm fortunate that I never have to face that situation again, I think.
1: You are. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people still out there doing yeah, it. Yeah, there are. You know, I, re- I remember when I started my career in purchasing, you know, people would, I was trained, I was told, you know, well, your your target is whatever it was, you know, for this particular component, maybe $5 cost reduction, but then up it by 10%. You know, and that's what you just tell them. You just tell the supplier that that's your target. So I was, you know, a dutiful, young uh, purchasing agent, you know, and I would go out there with this, well, but that's the target. And the supplier would say, well, why? Why do you, why do you need that? And I couldn't articulate a story behind it because it was just some made-up bullshit number, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. And then right. now, and then later on in my career, I learned that it was much better to talk about maybe what were the overall cost objectives of the program? Well, you know, what other things could we bring into play? Have a much more, a deeper, more meaningful conversation with transparency. It's much more powerful. And you get a lot more out of it at the end of the day, but sometimes people don't get that, right? No,
2: they don't. No, they don't. So I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a target pricer at heart. You know, I'm a target pricer at heart. And I explain to them what that target is. So here's our current cost. I'll show it to you. And if you can beat it by 5% or whatever it is, then it's yours and, and find a way to do it. I, I think that's much better than give me your bid and I'll tell you it's too high.
1: Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> For me, it's like once they've
2: given a bid, it's really hard to get them to change because they're embarrassed. So you might as well target price them from the beginning. It's much much quicker.
1: Yes, yes, well said, well said. Trust and transparency. Are clearly important to you. There are two traits of authentic leadership. What other traits of authentic leadership are important to you?
2: Well, you know, I think, you know, I I think what's allowed me to be successful in my role is over time the the, the degree of respect, right? I've I've been able to develop a a certain level of respect that gives me some motion. You know, for, for instance, uh, I was very happy that, uh, at the time I really wasn't, but when ISM asked me to take over the PMI, uh, I, I'm very happy to be involved in that. And, and the reason is, is that I get to use my 40 some odd years of manufacturing, discrete manufacturing and process manufacturing to interpret what the supply management community in the United States is really feeling about the economy for the prior month. Uh, I, I don't think I would have been given that role if, uh, if I hadn't developed a level of respect. At the time that uh, I was asked to do that job, I remember my, my daughter was the one who convinced me to do it because I was retired for two and a half years. And I got up when I wanted to get up. I went to bed when I wanted to get up. And to do this job, uh, not only do you have to devote two to two and a half days of time to it, you've got to analyze and write the report. Then you have to report on it. But you also have to spend a bunch of time during the month to understand what's going on with the economy because you can't do the analysis without understanding what's happening. So I really was reluctant to get back into it. She said, well, look, why don't you just try it out? Try it out. And so ISMs asked me to shadow uh, Brad Holcomb, who was the predecessor on the report for a couple of months. And when, in a couple of months, I started to re- to get, you know, read back into the business community and, and off I went, right? So I was, I was glad I did it because I, I think if I hadn't done it, I probably would not have gone back to work for Ryder because I think I would have been that far away from business that I probably would have said, no. I think I'm going to rather ride my motorcycle around the Northeast some more and, and grow my garden. No, it's canning season now. And I've got, uh, you know, eight batches of 30 pounds of tomatoes that I have to can, or I'm making cayenne peppers this year. I'm drying them out. I, I don't have time to go to work, <laughs> but I, I think the fact that I, that I got back into the, into the business community through the PMI really helped a lot. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly. I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the fact that uh, I've had a really fantastic career. It's been exciting and it still is exciting. I never thought I would be chasing PPE at the end of my career. I, I you know, I started my career doing that. I never thought I would, we used to call it the toilet paper brigade. I never thought I would chase. and at one point we were buying toilet paper for PPE because nobody could get it. And i I've, I've, uh, I've traveled the world. I've been exposed to a ton of different cultures. I've been to some really, really great places and uh, all because I was in supply management. One of the things I, you know, I'm ST, I used to read CS Forrester. I I looked when I, when, when uh, Sam Pinella had told me, look, get a five-year goal. My five-year goal was to travel the world and have somebody else pay for it. So, and that's when I got into the global sourcing roles in the, uh, in the mid nineties, that's exactly what it was to the point where, when I finally retired, I was kind of glad I wasn't globally traveling anymore. And, and you know, now I talk to a bunch of uh, sales guys and CEOs and, and nobody's traveling internationally anymore. And it was just such a, it was such a big part of everybody's uh, jobs and careers. And now, I mean, a lot of organizations now have gone from global organizations to regional uh, just to account for that. Because if you're living here in the U.S. and you're running a business in China, pretty hard to do unless you want to spend a month in quarantine both ways. So, you know, a lot of changes. This virus has caused a lot of things to change.
1: Tim, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, in today's environment?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, that was an interesting point in my career. I remember I got married when I was 25. And I was working on a program called the MX Missile, and I was buying the key subcomponents for a coolant system that kept the avionics cool so the missile would hit its target 8,000 miles away. And I got married, and I remember my wife and I took a three-day honeymoon because I couldn't be gone any longer. I look back at that like, now why did I do that? Did I really need to do that? So you, you, could, you, could you have found more time to go somewhere different rather than drive to the Cape and back? <laughs> thankfully, Thankfully, we've survived all these years. Uh, but I think the thing is, you know, find a a better balance. I mean, I think the longer I worked, the less balance I had, and it probably even got more acute the more I traveled internationally. And, you know, I always, I also felt that uh, since I did move at 28 for the first time, uh, and I also saw that if you stay in a company long enough, you eventually bump up against the ceiling and you have to wait. And if you're not willing to wait, then you have to move. And, and that's what I did. I was fortunate with, uh, with my first company in 25 years. I had six jobs in that company. I had to move three times. And then uh, once I left it for Ryder in the early 2000s, uh, once you've left your mother a company like that, it's never quite the same. So I, you know, I, did tend to, I ended up moving a lot, uh, which I'm not sure is good or bad. My wife and I still wonder where we really belong anymore. Do we belong in North Central Connecticut or do we belong in South Florida? Well, how about both? That's a good, that's a good answer. So I think, you know, I think try to retain some of that work-life balance. If you want to pursue a career, you've got to be willing to really do what you have to do, meaning you've got to relocate. I, I, at least I'm saying that now here in the COVID crisis where nobody's going to relocate, right? And, and we may be at a point where you could do a CPO job from 1,000 miles away as long as you don't have too big of a time difference. Uh, you know, when I was working in Europe, most of my work was in Europe, but I still had a lot of coordination activity in the United States. And I, you know I remember working late you know nine ten o'clock at night, conference call. nobody in the u s started to work until one o'clock in a in European time, but uh, you know the day went on long a lot of uh, a lot of personal sacrifice, you know fortunately, uh, you know a wife who was willing to put up with it, uh, you know a family who learned and grew with it too and uh, has done quite well so I guess you know. I don't know, my 25 year old self, I'd say try to find a little bit more work-life balance. I, I mentioned that I, I had a lot of hobbies when I was younger, a lot of hobbies. And as my career progressed, I lost more and more of them. So what I really, when I retired uh, the first time back in 2012, my whole goal was, I had a retirement plan and the goal was to bring back all of those things that I had lost over the years and keep the ones that I really wanted. And, uh, and I was very active at it for four years. And uh, I think that's a, if you're, if you're thinking about retirement, make sure you have a plan and, and, and the plan is not play more golf.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And what I hear from you is uh, maybe if I can just uh, summarize some of that advice. And that is, first of all, find a partner who understands your passion. And <laughs> if your work is your passion, make sure they understand that. It sounds like she, she most definitely has done that. And then not to not to sacrifice your whole self for your career. Understand what it is. And and what in you know, a work life balance is different to, to everybody. It's not necessarily a a balance. There are choices that we make in life. So don't sacrifice things that you know that are important to you. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think
2: that's good. The first one, absolutely. And the second one, try not to sacrifice.
1: Yeah. Try try yeah, yeah. try
2: harder. Don't don't sacrifice so easy. You know, think, think about it a little bit longer, right? There, there was definitely clear career choices I made where I knew what I was doing, you know, and I knew. When you, when you get into a global job, you know what that means. That's a lot of time, you know, gone, and it just comes to territory. And, you know, it, it, it started with me in the, in the 90s with UTC, although I moved my, my family with me. Uh, I traveled back to the U.S. quite a bit every six weeks. A lot of you know the traveling takes a lot. It it takes a lot out of your personal time, and by the time you get back, you're jet lagged, and a couple of days to of recover. And-
1: yeah, I think Tim. Sometimes people think that they have they have to make every decision in their life when you're in a global job like that for the job. And the reality is, you you don't have to make every decision for the job. It is your schedule; you control it, but. You know, you you have to understand what's important to you to make those right decisions. But once you make that decision, you live with it.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's clear to me that you are a leader with gravitas. Gravitas being the term that I love to use to describe the hallmark of authentic leadership. Gravitas is one of those words, everybody's got a slightly different understanding of what it is. What is gravitas to you, Tim, in leadership?
2: I think it's being comfortable yourself and, and, and allowing people to see your value and, and knowing that you're legitimate and that you're, you live by a set of values. And I think that's, that's key. You know, I, I think, and that's kind of how I was raised. You know, I, I still think about my grandfathers all the time. Uh, I think everybody should always think about their grandfathers if you're fortunate enough to have known them. Uh, I remember they were hardworking men, you know, uh, graduated high school. Uh, I remember some of the lessons that they passed on to me and I would never want to disappoint them. So, and disappointing them would be by being not legitimate. So, or or being evasive or, you know, just, just trying to get ahead and climb over people. So I think that's gravitas. I think it's, you know, being you know, respected because you've earned it and you've earned it because you've got the right values.
1: Yeah, that's beautifully said. So what is your legacy?
2: Well, besides my, my uh, children and my grandchildren, I think, um, you know, I, I think I've, I've been in a bunch of businesses now and I still stay in touch with a bunch of people who work for me, where as I kind of evolved what I guess I would call now my toolkit, uh, post, post, uh, you know, post Europe, and I think that uh, leaving, you know, these people in other organizations, continuing to support them and counsel them and watch them grow in their their businesses and their careers is very gratifying. I mean, I came from a group when we were at United Technologies, we we got the Medal of Professional Excellence when Purchasing Magazine was still around. And one of, the, one of the things that they had put in there was all the people who had come out of that organization and became VPs on their own. Well, that was really all due to Ken Burton and Shelley Stewart attracting the right people in, putting the, the right amount of investment in terms of knowledge and, uh, and having the ear of the leadership of the company to allow us to be successful. So, you know, you look at, at all the, the men and women who did so well from that. And, I mean, it's, it's more than two hands worth. It's you know it's really impressive. So no, I think I think my legacy is you know always work as a team, be as honest and transparent as possible. Don't you know don't be insecure with yourself to the point where you can't be. And you know it's all about uh, continuously getting better. I mean, I I remember when I left uh, Ryder back in uh, the mid 2000s. One of the reasons why I left was we really were not practicing continuous improvement very well. And I had been schooled in it really extensively at United Technologies. And I, I really, I got the fever back in 1993 when I was out of Pratt & Whitney, Canada, manufacturing factory, making jet engines, doing it in a lean fashion. And the uh, the VP of ops at the time, Louis Chenever, went on to be the CEO of uh, UTC. And I really felt that that was part of my DNA. It was continuously improving things. It didn't have to be uh, a big leap. It just had to be better every day. And I kind of, or live my life that way in my career. It's got to be better every day. Staying still at the same level is not acceptable. You got to get better every day. And I think that's, that's the legacy. You, just, you, you can do better every day.
1: Getting better every day, small incremental steps of improvement. And that is a beautiful way to end our time today. Tim Fury, I can't thank you enough. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, same
2: here, Jan. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your Gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at GravitasDetroit.com to find out more.